The central event in the history of the world is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You go, ah, maybe not, whatever, but here's the deal. Last Sunday, we were celebrating that event on Easter Sunday with millions, if not billions of people around the world. There's about two billion people in the world that would claim to be followers of Christ in some way. So we're still talking about thousands of years later, this thing that happened 2,000 years ago where this guy in Jerusalem died and came back from the dead. And so all these people gathered last weekend to worship him. And what do we call those people? Easter worshipers, right? No, we, we call them Christians, Christ followers, uh, disciples of Christ. These are, these are the people that gathered and, and we celebrated. Um, but here, here's the question. What comes next after that? So you get together and you rah-rah and you celebrate and you, you put on a fun hat and you dress up your dog and you go for a walk and your kids do an Easter egg hunt. And then what happens? Well, the next day, I guess you go back to work, and then life continues on. You kind of just do your thing, right? Go back into your normal flow. Well, for the original people who saw Jesus come back from the dead, they couldn't just go back to work. They couldn't just go back into regular life. They saw a guy who was dead, and then he wasn't dead. And it was like, okay, I need to rethink everything I know about everything. Something has changed here that has shifted the world beneath my feet, and I can't just go back to being a fisherman or whatever it was they were. Uh, they, they had to do something with, with what they had, had seen. Um, so I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the aftermath, because a lot of times at churches, we kind of lead up to Easter, and we're like, and then Jesus came back from the dead, and it's like, yeah, but now what? What happened after that? Because the gospel writers actually give us a few details of things that happened about how Jesus appeared to to people and different interactions that he had post-resurrection. And so I want to get into just a bit of that today because we who are followers of Jesus thousands of years later, we're living in that now what stage. We're living in that space of like, okay, this happened. How do we react to it? What are we going to do next? What's our next move? We're living in that space. And I want to talk about uh, what do we do in that, that aftermath. Jesus gives his followers some marching orders. And you may have heard these before. I want to read them to you. This is pretty famous. Uh, some of the last things Jesus said before he kind of leaves the earth to his, his disciples. He says, all right, I want, I want you to know this. This is important final instructions for you that I need you to get. And, and what he told them actually still applies to us. So I, I, want, I want you to track with it because I want you to hear how this kind of this unfolds. I'm going to read to you from Matthew 28. Again, if you've been around any church, this church or, or any other one, you've probably heard this before, um, but th this is geez, some of his final words here. Matthew 28, there are four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Matthew records this for us, starting with verse 16. It says this, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Man, I love that the Bible records that. Like I mentioned last week about the resurrection, this is one of these details that does not make Christianity look good. Here we have the closest followers of Jesus. They see him. He came back from the dead. They go to Galilee up in the north, and they're by this, they go up on this mountain where Jesus said, hey, go wait for me. And then he shows up, and a lot of these guys are like, a lot of these 11 are like, oh, man, this is it. This is Jesus. He's back from the dead, and we're worshiping him. And I don't know. They sing to him. They honor him. They pray with him. They do something, but they worship him in that moment. And a couple of the guys are like, meh. I don't know. I don't know about this. Like, what's really going on here? I don't get it. And they're like skeptical. And wouldn't, but, but let's be honest, some of you are pretty skeptical people, right? Wouldn't you be skeptical? Like someone, someone's probably told you this weekend that like 
Endgame, Avengers Endgame is the greatest movie like ever. And aren't you probably like, nah, I don't know, can't be that good. You know what I mean? Like it, for the three of us that haven't seen it. I mean, don't you, aren't you like, eh, it's probably not that good, right? Um, because we're skeptical people. I've said this before. Jesus could have appeared to them, or let's say today, Jesus this afternoon could appear in the sky like a Greek god with lightning and fire coming down from the sky. And a lot of us would see that and we would be like, I saw that in a movie once. That's pretty cool. We would, be, we would still be so skeptical. We'd be like, I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, like how many other people have they seen come back from the dead? None. And so they see this one guy and they're like, I, I don't know. Again, it doesn't make Christianity look great, but I, I love how honest it is because there's a skeptic that lives inside of me and, and I'm sure lives inside of you. But that's who they were, these guys. They were faithful and they were faithless. They were dreamers and they were doubters. They were believers, they were skeptics. It's who they were and it's who we are today. So what does he tell them? He shows up, they worship him, and then he says this, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus shows up and he gives them these marching orders. We call this the Great Commission, this kind of, let me send you out in this special way. And, he, and it, there's two parts to it. There's what Jesus is going to do, his part in this, and we'll get into that in a minute. And then there's our part. He gives instructions to his followers and he gives them content and context. And he says, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out and I want you, as you're going out, I want you to Speak about what you've heard. I want you to be witnesses of this resurrection. I want you to tell other people about me. And when you do, I want you to help them come to me, become followers of me. And I want you to, the initiation of that is they get baptized into Christ. They are immersed in water. They come out of water, born again as new followers of Jesus. I want you to baptize people. And then he says, I want you to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Other translations say, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. So think of all the things Jesus taught about anger, about lust, about relationships, about uh, fathers and, and children, about, um, uh, about sex, about money, about heaven and hell, and all of these things. Jesus teaches on all this stuff for years, and a lot of it's recorded in the Gospels. And so Jesus says, I want you to baptize people to be my disciple, and part of being a disciple is I want you to teach people to follow along, observe, obey the stuff that I taught you. And so, in some ways, this is what we do as a church. Every Sunday when we get here, we're getting into stuff that Jesus taught on some level, and we're trying to figure out what we need to observe there and, and how we can be obedient to what he taught. Um, we're trying to be his followers. We do this every week with different topics. Next Sunday, we are starting a new series that I'm really excited about called Instimacy, and we're going to talk about um, the digital world we, we live in, loneliness, and friendship and talk about building friendships and, and what that can look like. And, and we're gonna give you lots of opportunities over the next six weeks of this series to connect and build more relationships. So Jesus says, um, go, be witnesses of this resurrection, tell people what you've seen here, and then um, teach people to obey what I taught. Uh, don't keep it to yourself. And so that, is, uh, he actually says it this way, he says to go make disciples. Becoming a disciple, one who follows after Jesus, 
is what the church does. It's what Area 10 does. It's what all churches do on some level. If they're, if they're Christian churches, they are making disciples. They're making more people who can follow after and learn from Jesus and walk the way he walked as if he were in their shoes. That's what being a disciple is about. And so the church, this church, uh, is designed to do that. That's the underlying mission. So when we preach here, when we sing, when we pray, when we meet in small groups and homes, when we do classes over at 2810, what the kids are doing now, what the teenagers do on Sunday night, all of this is around the idea of making disciples, of helping people come to know Jesus and, and follow after him. So that's our part. We're supposed to be doing that. Jesus gives his part as well. Go back to what he said there at the beginning of that verse. He says, uh, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he says. Go, therefore. That's weird, right, if you think about it. Because he says, therefore means like, you know, because of this fact, I want you to go. So he says, I have all the authority and power on, on, earth, on heaven and earth. Like, I am the supreme, basically, like, I am the supreme ruler of, of all. And because of that fact, I want you to go. And make disciples. It's weird because you think he would say, I have all the power, therefore I'm just going to go make all the disciples. It's not what he does. He actually partners with us and says, I've got the power, you need to go and make disciples. Um, and a lot of commentators will say this. What Jesus is telling them, and then by extension is telling us, is when you go to speak up about your faith, when you tell other people about Jesus, he's going with you. You are not alone in that. He is empowering your words. He is drawing people to himself. He's working on people's hearts before you even speak up. That means if I speak up to someone and I tell them about Jesus, I, don't, I, can, I can do my best, but I don't own the results. He does. So if I speak up to someone about Jesus and they decide, hey, I, I get it and I want to follow Jesus, I don't sit there and go, man, look, look what a great job I did. It's not about me. He drew them in. And similarly, if I speak up and it doesn't go well and people are like, I don't care about your Jesus, don't really care about Christianity, don't like organized religion or whatever we say in America these days, if people say that to me, um, that's not on me either. Like, I don't take the credit and I don't take the blame. Like, Jesus is doing his work. His power is at work in, in the background. Um, he's drawing people with. And then he says to them at the end, I am with you always. I'm going to walk this thing out with you forever. So in the aftermath of his resurrection, he gives his followers a mission, and what was true for them is still true for us. Now, let me trace out for a second where it goes from that day, kind of till now, of, of, of where this Jesus movement went. There are four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke records all about Jesus, and he writes it down in that book called Luke, and then Luke writes a second book in, in the New Testament. It's called Jesus and the Chamber of Secrets. It's really good, you guys. JK, guys, JK. Um, no, he writes a second book, and it's called Acts, and it's the Acts of the Apostles. It's, it's what God's Spirit was doing. It's an early history book of, of the church. And listen to how he opens that book. He's writing it to his friend Theophilus. He wrote the book of Acts, the first book, to, uh, the book of Luke. He wrote that first history book to Theophilus, and then he follows up with the second book. Listen to how he opens the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Luke says, hey, Theophilus, this is what I saw. I'm writing it down. I've talked to the eyewitnesses. I have, I've gathered the evidence. Jesus appeared over a period of 40 days. He appeared to people. Uh, there's a lot of proof of this. Here's what was going on. I, I wrote all the early stuff down. Now I'm, now I'm taking it some time to write out for you basically what happened next, where this Jesus movement went. Um, so he, he lays that out for his friend. And I love, that, I love that in the beginning of Luke and the beginning of Acts, you get the impression that these books were written down just so Luke's friend Theophilus could believe. Like, I just want you to know, man. Like, it matters to me that you understand who Jesus was. I want you to know this. I wrote it. I did a lot of research so that you would understand this. It's a powerful love that Luke has for a friend here. Look at what happens in verse 6. So when they had come together, the, the disciples come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or season that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the disciples get together, and in this entire series that we're wrapping up today, we've been saying, Jesus is a king. He comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, and they treat him as if he's a king. His crowning moment is on the cross. This is a coronation of king. Um, and, and he's been talking about this kingdom, this, this subversive kingdom that exists all over the world in all times and in all ways that is not um, about political power and dominating people, but is this, this under, underground kind of thing, this kingdom of God. Um, and, he's, and so his disciples still don't quite get that. They're like, hey, since you're here, is this now the moment that you're going to become king? You're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. You are going to make us great. Is this it? Are you the guy we were waiting for? You died. We thought that ruined it. You came back. Okay, that's exciting. Now, right? Now is when you're going to step up and be king on a throne somewhere. And he's like, right, just stop. Just stop. I'm like, no, no. He says, look, here's what you need to know. The Holy Spirit that I told you was going to come is going to come inside you and live in you. And then that power in you, you are going to be my witnesses. You're going to speak up about what you've seen. Where? Four places. Jerusalem, the local city. Judea, the region around Jerusalem. Samaria, the next region over, and the ends of the earth. So he gives this context and this, this, this drive that Christianity, that, that this, these followers of Jesus are going to spread the word about him, and it's going to spread out from Jerusalem, and it's going to go to the ends of the earth. And if you read the book of Acts, there's you know, 27 more chapters or whatever. If you read through that, you'll see how it starts to go out. And I find Acts to be the most exciting and discouraging book in the New Testament. It's exciting because what I read there, these early followers of Jesus are praying and the walls shake when they pray. People are getting freed from prison. People are being healed. There's like incredible stuff going on from this early church and lots and lots of people, thousands of people are coming to know God. It's really cool to see the whole trend of the thing and see how it's spreading, how this thing is starting to get fulfilled. It's cool to see that. It's discouraging when I think how unlike it looks the, the modern church, and, and how far we've, we've gone astray from that. And I would just encourage you, if you've never read the book of Acts, you can do that this week. Sit down a couple times this week and just read through and look at what's there. And I want you to ask yourself a question, like, how do I get to be a part of this? As I read it, how, how can I get in on this? Because this is powerful stuff. What part do I have to play 
in all this. And then I want you to know this thing. Um, you are a part of it. You're, you're part of what came next. Uh, the gospel spread Throughout the book of Acts, you see over the course of a couple decades, you see it spreading to various regions. It starts to go out, among, out in the Roman Empire, into Turkey, into Greece, into Rome. Um, eventually, it's going to go around to North Africa. And it, it spreads in the Roman Empire. And you go from a handful of Jesus followers, these 11, to a couple hundred, to a few thousand the day of Pentecost pretty quickly. And it spreads to 30 million people within 300 years. So by the time Constantine, the emperor of Rome, becomes a Christian, 30 million people following Jesus. So it started to take over the entire Roman Empire. Um, and that's powerful. And then it goes out from there. It goes further up the north into France, into Scandinavia. People start becoming followers of Jesus there. Uh, in Ireland, uh, a, a guy named Patrick goes there and introduces the gospel to people. You may have heard of that. We celebrate him bringing the gospel to people in Ireland. We celebrate that every year by getting drunk and pinching each other, just as he wanted us to celebrate it. Um, Patrick goes there and induces the gospel to Ireland. The British Isles um, in, in England, there's 10,000 people that get baptized in Canterbury the first year uh, that the gospel is introduced there. So you see this, this Christian contagion sort of spreading. And then through the Middle Ages, and it, um, it, it goes on. You see Christianity starts to spread out into, into India, into, uh, into South America. You see people starting to come to know the Lord. There's missionaries travel. They go to the Far East. If you've seen the movie Silence, it's a really hard movie to watch about uh, missionaries from Portugal going out to Japan in the 1600s and sharing the gospel there and the challenges that they were having there reaching that culture. So you see the gospel spreading all over the place. It spreads to the new world, North America, with some, with some Puritans, some people coming who are fleeing religious persecution, their desires to come to America and set it up as this great Christian nation, this, this city on a hill, this shining example of Christianity, this place where we can all live together and follow Jesus free from all the yucky government interference and all that kind of thing. This is the idea behind a large thread of early America. This isn't to say that all early Americans were Christians because they were not, but in the founding documents of our country, you see Christian threads throughout what they're saying, whether they were um, Christians as we know them or deists or something like that, but, but there's definitely this undercurrent of Christianity behind the ideals that, of, of the founding of this country. And then, uh, because not everyone's really a Christian early America, there's a lot of paganism. Richmond itself had a, Richmond, y'all don't you know this, like in the 1700s, Richmond was the Vegas of, of the New World. It was rough. Shaco Bottom has been a rough place for like a couple hundred years of like, like some stuff went down in, in the bottom. Um, uh, so, so not everybody's a Christian, of course. So you had these revivals going on in, in, in the Americas in the, in the 1700s, 1800s. They were known as the Great Awakenings. You can look this up, the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening. In that day, because people were pagan, if you got woke, it did not mean that you understood intersectionality. It meant that uh, you came, the light bulb came on and you understood Jesus. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm woke now. Like I, I probably didn't say that back then, but you know, like, okay, I, I get it. If there's an awakening, my spirit has been awoken, and I, I now realize God. I get it. And a lot of people became followers of Jesus then. Um, and this continued on through world wars where people started doubting and questioning their existence of everything. Uh, and then in the 1920s, and then the wars in, in, in 1940, um, and then beyond that, um, 
And, and so during that time period, there was a church in Newport News uh, called the 24th Street Church of Christ. And in 1938, they formed an organization called the Virginia Evangelizing Fellowship in order to spread the gospel throughout Virginia out of this church in Newport News. Um, from that organization, they planted their first church in 1941 in Stanton, Virginia in a converted garage. Uh, they, they, they started a new community there of Jesus followers. Uh, and that continued on to where there are now hundreds of churches that have been started from that. Uh, they, they formalized as a church planting organization in 1989. And that organization was then called Virginia Vision. That was the church planting arm. In 1990, they hired a guy named Brett Andrews to plant New Life Christian Church in Chantilly. And so he started a church up there. Um, he hired a guy named Vince Antonucci. Vince came on and then was sent out from New Life Church down to Virginia Beach to plant Forefront Church there. He co-planted that church with Tim Cole. Uh, Tim Cole is the father of Susan Cole, who does A10, who oversees our A10 Children's Ministry right now at our church. Uh, Tim hired me in 2000 to work with him at Forefront Church in Virginia Beach. I was there for five years, and then Tim hired me to move up to Richmond to plant uh, Velocity Church out in Short Pump. Uh, and we did that in 2006, and then in 2008, this church was launched in September 21 of 2008, um, and here we are. So that's the history of Christianity from the disciples to us. I, I covered the highlights. I missed, there's, I mean, there's a few stories I skipped. There were popes and anti-popes and a great schism and all that. You can look it up later. Um, but here's what that means. It means we are the next in line of a very long line of people who are called to spread the word about Jesus. We're called to speak up. And the only reason, if any of you are a follower of Jesus right now, the only reason you are is because someone spoke up to you. Someone overcame their fear of talking about it and they overcame their fear of judgment and all of that stuff. And they said to you, this is the path, walk in it. And you accepted that. It might have been your parents. It might have been friends. It might have been someone in your, in your fraternity. It might have been, you know, it, it could have been someone along the way who spoke to you and helped you know God and so as a follower of Jesus, number one, you are called to tell others about him. Now, this is a sticky point for people because in this digital age, um, it has never been easier to tell people about what you believe. You can broadcast stuff. If, if a tweet goes viral, it could be seen all over the world. You can communicate all over the world. It's never been easier than now to do that. But when, when there's a lot of eyeballs on what you're doing and saying, it opens it up to a whole lot of criticism. And I understand that. Um, you know, the larger the platform, the more criticism you're going to get. I love the city of Richmond. I've lived here for 13 years now and, and love it. And, and I, I, I don't know if I can get buried in Hollywood Cemetery. I don't know that you can still do that. But I'll, I'm, I'm going to inquire about that and see if I can get there. But I, I, I want to I invest here. I want to be here. Um, I love this place. Um, and so, but every now and then someone will ask me, they're like, man, you, you really are, you know, you love to network in the city and get involved. Have you ever thought about running for office? And I'm like, no. It, have you seen what happens to people who run for office? Like, it's brutal. Like, the criticism just rains down from all corners. I'm like, look, as a pastor of a church, I get enough of that. Like, I don't want to expose that. I don't want to be open my whole family to all of, you know, the city or whatever. Like, that's, that's rough, right? Like, what, what people have to do. And I, I have a lot of respect for people who can bear up under that weight and, and come out, you know, unscathed in that because that's a lot. Um, man, if I'm going to be 
criticized. I'd rather it be for sharing the gospel and standing for Christ and the truth of Scripture. Um, and I get it. I don't want... Um, I know why we don't want to speak up about our faith because we don't want to take the hits. We don't want to be called bigots or whatever name people want to call. Um, I get that. I want to be liked too. <laughs> I don't like being not liked. Um, but I'm, I'm not asking when I say we need to speak up about Jesus. I'm not saying, I'm not asking you to sell a junky car. I'm asking you to live consistently with the Easter story. That this guy died and came back to life and that changes everything for us. If he came back from the dead, it has implications for money and sex and how we relate to power and how we eat and how we raise our children and what we believe is the ultimate purpose of what we're doing here. It speaks to all of those things. As we live in the aftermath of the resurrection, it is not our job to raise the dead. It is our job to introduce people to the one who can so how do we do that? Let me make this very practical because you've probably heard before, I should speak up about my faith, but it's intimidating. Here, let, me, let me make this practical. Number one, make a list of friends who need to know Jesus and pray for them. I have a list on my computer. Sometimes I write it in my journal. I'll write someone's name and then I'll just start praying for them. People that you know at work, at school, in a club, whatever, um, people that you are in con consistent contact with in your circles here in Richmond, um, Put their name in God's ear on the reg, right? Like, say, I'm going to pray for this person often. Say, God, uh, can, you, can you help me? Can you use me to reach this person? Speak through me to this person. Just write them down and pray for them, and then let's see what opportunities open up. Secondly, engage them in a spiritual conversation. Engage people in a spiritual conversation. Um, this, is, this is tricky because... Um, uh, this is where it gets intimidating. You know, a lot of people are like, well, I'll just live out my faith quietly. I won't speak up. You got, you're going to have to speak up at some point. So engage in spiritual conversations. Here's, here's a couple suggestions on that. Number one, find common ground with people. This is almost like a lost art in our polarized culture. Find common ground. Most people are not openly hostile to your faith. Some people will be, but most people are, are not. A lot of people would consider themselves spiritual, not religious. They'll say, I don't like organized religion, but I am spiritual. All right, start there. Start with the spiritual side and say, what does that mean to you? And ask a lot of questions and discover. Lean into them and learn about them. But engage people in conversation. Um, it, it, you start by finding common ground. A lot of people feel lonely. A lot of people want hope. A lot of people want meaning. That stuff's pretty common to humanity. So start there and say, this is where I'm seeing hope. This is where I find meaning. This is where I see purpose in the world. So find, find common ground um, and share your personal story. Share your personal story. We love stories. We are a story people. We're, we're narrative people. We like stories that make sense of the thing, and we lean in on stories. If you give me data and graphs about Christianity and about the Bible or about, any, or about Jesus, most people are just going to tune, out, tune that out, like I don't, data, I don't care. Like, not many people love that kind of stuff, but what people love is a story, and if you can tell a story, um, that's compelling. Why are so many people showing up to see Avengers this weekend? Because we love a story. Plus, it's awesome, uh, but we, we, love, we, we get sucked into the story. Oh, what is going on? Like, you know, how, did, how did that resolve, and, and, and all the things that that makes you think and feel? Um, and if you share your story, hey, this is how God's at work in my life. This is what God has done for me. Nobody can argue with your story. It's not a fight. It's just 
This is what's going on. This is why we pay money for movies. This is why we pay money for plays, for concerts, for, for, uh, for, for uh, musicals. We, we lean into that stuff because there are stories there, and, and, and we want to be a, a part of that. Um, so, so share your spiritual story, and then finally, look for any open door moments. There are these little moments throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the month, that God just kind of throws the door open and says, okay, here's, here's a chance. Here's, a, here's an opportunity for you to notice something. And sometimes it's with another person. Like, here's a chance to speak up. Sometimes it's just in your own heart. Like, hey, I want to work on you about this thing. Here's a thing. And, and you feel weird right now. Go with that. What's going on there? The Greeks had two words for time. One is chronos, which is where we get our idea of chronological or sequential time. This is like four o'clock. That you're, when you say it's four o'clock, you're talking about chronos. But there's another word for time called kairos, and that means the right, critical, or opportune moment. And so I went to a wedding a couple weeks ago, and I had a great time at the wedding. When I say to you, man, that wedding was a great time, I'm not talking about five o'clock on that Saturday. I'm talking about the experience of the thing, the moment the opportunity there was there, the slice of life that I got to experience there. That's kairos. And you have kairos moments all through your life. I bet if I asked you right now, in 2018, where was there a kairos moment where you feel like God spoke to you or showed up? I don't mean like in an audible voice, but it was like, hey, hey, like notice this. Was it when you got a diagnosis? Was it when your job changed? Was it when your friend went through a crisis? Was it when you went through a crisis? Was it when you had an unusual emotional reaction to something and you were like, oh, wait a second, what's going on here? What was the Kairos moment for you? My guess is you've had a lot of those over the last couple months, years. You've probably had them this week. You just didn't know what to call them or maybe you ignored them and just, oh, I don't know what that was. Or A lot of us, you know, in the moment, we're not noticing. Later, five hours later, we think of the exact right thing we should have said. Am I the only one who does that? You know, you're like laying in bed, you're like, oh, what I should have said was, I wish we had a do-over, right? There's these kairos moments. Notice them. God gives them to you. Lean in. And with someone else that you want to share your faith with, look for those moments. Look for those opportune times. Um, I, had, I had one this week. Um, I, had, I, had, I was sitting down um, in, in the doctor's office waiting and I was planning on, I knew I had about an hour to wait. I was waiting for my kid. And um, I was like, I'm going to get some writing done. And I sit down with my laptop. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going I'm to knock this out. I'm going to get it done. It's great. No one's going to bug me. And then this woman sits down, who I know through sports in town, our kids play. And then she and I ended up having a spiritual conversation, talking for like an hour. I'm like, I guess I didn't get any. I told her, I didn't get my writing done. Thanks a lot. I didn't say that to her. Uh, but it was great. It was, it was a moment that God threw open a door and said, here, here's an opportunity to have a conversation with someone. Um, and those moments show up throughout our week. Um, notice them and, uh, and, and lean into them. Lean into them with your, with your friends. All right, so, so this is it. The marching orders that Jesus gave, the way we live in the aftermath is, number one, we do what we said. We tell other people about Jesus. Um, in, 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 in whatever context you're in, at work, school, whatever. Number two, become a disciple of Jesus. 
become a disciple of Jesus. Jesus starts that commission. He says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Your first step into following Jesus is to be, is to be baptized. We immerse people in water. We baptize them here at this church. We, we have property at 2810, just a block from here. We baptize people there. Do that. Get, get, a, get baptized. Write on your connection card, I'm interested in getting baptized. We'll talk to you. We'll arrange it, and we can come together and sit down and, and talk about you getting baptized. That, that is... That is the first step in, in our discipleship, our apprenticeship with Jesus. And then the final piece of that is to grow as a disciple of Christ, to grow. Um, everything I'm reading when I read like church books right now, uh, so much of what I'm reading right now is, is saying the same thing. A lot of books are being written, a lot of questions are being asked of the American church. And basically what they're saying is, hey, the American church is really good at making spiritual consumers American church is doing a great job of getting people to be fans of a show and to show up and rah-rah a show, but it's not doing a good job of making disciples of Jesus, of, of helping people become the kind of people who, will, who can you know, do as Jesus would do if he, was in their, if he were in their shoes. So there's a lot of work there that needs to be done just on discipleship. The word disciple is in that same root of the word discipline. When we become disciples of Jesus, we enter into a disciplined path where we're going to pray and we're going to read and study and grow and do all these things. We're going, to, we're going to enter that discipline so that we can, will grow. We will take on those habits so our character is formed in Christ. That's what, that's what we do here. That's what a, a church truly is. Um, the early disciples in the book of Acts and beyond, they turned the world upside down. They, they fundamentally changed the Roman Empire, which was a big empire. They changed that thing and they didn't do it because they got together in pretty buildings and watched a show. They did it by their own personal faith getting white hot and their own discipline and, and, and getting together in communities and seeing the community impact the greater community. That's, that's how the transformation happens. When, that, when, when people change and communities change, it affects the whole city. That stuff is contagious. Um, the world will not be changed for Jesus through a bunch of people that have seminary degrees. In fact, sometimes seminary degrees are counterproductive to that kind of thing. It will be changed by regular people in regular jobs who go, I'm going to get serious about what I believe and I'm going to walk it out in this job, in this context, in this school, in this space. When we do that, the world changes. Area 10 Church exists to transform lives in the city for the city. That transformation process is one at a time, as we all change, we become more like Christ and it, we, it, it, it infects the city. So if, you're gonna, if that's going to happen, it's going to start with you saying, how many years do I have left on this earth and what am I going to do to make the most of it? Because like when you're 20, you think you have all the years left. But as you get older, the older you get, you start to realize, wait a second, there's a limit to this thing. What are you going to do with the years that you have? How are you going to make the most of it? Is the goal make the money and make the thing and then we're going to retire in the villages in Florida one day? Um, is, that, is, that, is that the end game? Is that the real end game here? Or is there, a, is there a greater goal? Is there a greater mission that God has us on? Live for this kingdom that Jesus is talking about. Live for it now and bring as many people along with you as you can. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, I thank you for the kingdom that you invite us to be a part of and the power that is available there to us through prayer, through the community, through the connections that are made. God, may we be people who lean in and follow after you and honor you um, with our lives and enter into a discipline where we, where we really seek to learn what you're teaching and obey your commandments. Um, Lord, help us to find those Kairos moments to speak up this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.